everyone. Welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. We are picking up where we left off last weekend. We're, we're starting in Ezra chapter five. We're going through all of Nehemiah and all of the book of Esther. If this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey. 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 Uh, and uh, yeah, we're going to jump right, right into it. So we left off uh, last week in Ezra chapter four. <clears throat> where the people the people who had returned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem had rebuilt the altar of sacrifice but the enemies their enemies had succeeded in getting a stop work order for the temple from the king of Persia at that time so that's where we are in the history of the timeline so let's pick up where we left off in Ezra chapter 5 <clears throat> okay so Haggai and Zechariah the prophet prophesied to the people and to Joshua and Zerubbabel, the priest and the governor, to get to work again. And another letter is written to the new king Darius. In chapter six, so, so when, the, when the people start working on the temple again, the enemies re, rewrite a new letter to the king Darius. In Ezra chapter six, King Darius of Persia finds the decree of Cyrus, that original decree of Cyrus, who wanted the Temple of Jerusalem to rebuilt, to be rebuilt. And Darius upholds that decree. So the people finally finish the temple in Jerusalem. They celebrate Passover. They celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and then in Ezra chapter 7, we have Ezra the priest who is the person who this book is named after, uh, comes to Jerusalem. And he was a teacher of the law, and he brought even more exiles with him. So he's bringing people back to Jerusalem. He brings a lot of money and treasure from the king of Persia. <clears throat> His uh, purpose uh, was to teach the people and to establish godly judges who could... Uh, bring stability and bring godliness back to these people in Judah once again. In Ezra chapter 8, we're given a list of all these family heads that uh, returned back with Ezra. And we're told that specifically Ezra wanted to focus on bringing the descendants of the exiled workers of the temple back to Jerusalem so that they could once again work in the temple in Jerusalem. Because now that this temple was completed, it needed to be run properly. So <clears throat> this even describes how in a few cases, Ezra had to convince people uh, who weren't going to return to return with him. And this kind of explains why you have the temple musicians and the genealogies in Chronicles, right? Yes, yes, right? It's exactly. all coming back down to this point. Yeah, it's it's Ezra trying to get things working again. Like, this is your duty. This is what your ancestors were called to. I right. know that you're doing something different now in, in Babylon where you've been settled, but it's time to come back. So uh, we get this really interesting history of how those exiles and Ezra traveled back to Jerusalem. So once Ezra got permission for them to come back to Jerusalem, he was then too embarrassed to ask for military protection because he's been saying, you know, how this was providential, how God would protect them, how God had his hand on this. So he was too embarrassed to ask for um, uh, Persian protection. So they, they travel through, um, 
they travel the long way from, you know, Babylon to Jerusalem and they make it. All right. So Ezra chapter nine uh, is a really interesting and brutal chapter. It's about intermarriage with pagan people. Now, this can really easily be taken out of context and be made about um, racism, essentially. Right. Uh, because Ezra uh, was very upset that the people, the returned Judeans, had begun to intermarry with other people in the land at that point. But listen to verse 14 of Ezra chapter 9. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? So this was not about race in terms of nationality or or skin color or something like that. It was no. never about that for Israel. It was <clears throat> it was about the religious practices of the people and the cultural practices of the people. There were pagan people and people of other nationalities that regularly intermarried with Israel, but they became a part of Israel by becoming worshipers of God. So inclusion within Israel was supposed to be about the covenant that the people had with God. Right. So this was about the practices of the people and who the people were serving rather than what they looked like. Right. And it God. specifically mentions too, I don't know if it's in this one or Nehemiah, it could be both actually, mm -hmm. where the children, uh, even their children aren't obeying God. So it's not just yeah. like, hey, I married a foreign woman. It's, oh, I'm full heartedly involved in these other religious practices that are anti-God. Yes. So so it's like a it's not quite the same thing. Yes. Um because yeah. Yeah, and 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 we see I mean David the 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 kingly line had people who were not Israelite by birth in them. Yeah. And and there was people who were considered a part of Israel who were living in Israel who were from other nations. It wasn't about yeah. that. It was about who it was about the religious practices that they right. kept. Or didn't. Hear. And some of their children didn't even know Hebrew. It's like they specifically yeah. didn't know the language. So it's like they were really being taught something fundamentally different. Yes. Yes. Okay. So in Ezra chapter 10, they call an assembly essentially to call for mass divorce uh, in these cases where uh, there was there there was essentially irreconcilable differences between these people um, following God or rejecting. Right. And, and it's assumed here that the people could have chosen God. Yes. It's like, that they could have become followers yeah. of, you know, God, but they chose not to. So we see them establishing a case-by-case -case basis here, and there were about 110 marriages that right. were looked at by Ezra the priest and these judges of Israel. Now, let us not conflate Modern marriages with ancient marriages, there's a lot that can be said and a lot that should be said when it comes to Christian marriages now on this side, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here in Ezra chapter 9. No, no, no. I just no. want to make that clear. Yeah. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're moving on to this next book of the Bible. This occurs just a bit after the return of Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries. So it appears that the exiles had tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem uh, as they were rebuilding the temple, but they had been stopped. So Nehemiah prays uh, 
he's appealing to God using the promises of Moses that if the people return to God, that God would return to Jerusalem. So these people are returning to God. So we learned that Nehemiah is actually in Persia at this point when he's thinking about all of these issues and praying through all of these issues. He is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who um, was the son of Xerxes. So um, we're going to meet Xerxes in the next book of the Bible in Esther. Uh, you know, Nehemiah being a top official of the Persian king is pretty usual. It's pretty commonplace. Many of the exiles did well in exile. Remember, most of them didn't want to go back with Ezra to Jerusalem. They had established right. good lives. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So Nehemiah chapter 2 Nehemiah decides on a bold move. He is going to do his duty as cupbearer, but he's going to do it well in mourning. And he even says in chapter two, I was very much afraid. He was afraid of mm -hmm. the repercussions of this. Um, it ends up uh, really well for Nehemiah. God is with him. He asks to be sent. Nehemiah asks to be sent by the king to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem. He asks for letters from the Persian king that would secure him safe travel and free building materials, wood specifically. Um, and the king did. He listened to Nehemiah. He gave him money. He gave him letters of passage. He even sent him with a protection military force, um, both officers and cavalry, so mm. horses as well. And Neo Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and it must have been quite impressive how he arrived with this royal <laughs> cavalry with him. He rests three days, and then he begins to inspect the wall of Jerusalem at night because he hasn't told anyone his mission yet. So he's still being a little bit covert. And this is probably because there's a lot of people in the land that don't want this to happen. We're told that we're given the names of um, specific enemies. One of them is Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria. And the other that we're told is Tobiah, who is possibly the governor of Ammon. Definitely some sort of official mm -hmm. in the land. They do not want this to happen. Uh, Nehemiah chapter three, this is a list of the, this is a, when the wall of Jerusalem is being rebuilt, this is a list of who was building what section of the wall. So this wall was put up very hastily. It was put up um, in sections and then kind of piecemealed together. So it wasn't the greatest wall, but it was still a wall. Mm. Uh, chapter four, we're told that Sanballat and Tobiah planned to attack Jerusalem, but word reaches Nehemiah first. And so the people begin to build the wall while they're also wearing weapons um, and they're prepared for an attack. Right. That's what this means. So they have they have lookouts, they have a trumpeter, they establish trumpet signals in, in case of an attack um, so that they could be ready. But because they were ready, Sanballat did not attack. He, he caught wind that they were ready for him and they didn't want that drama. Mm. Nehemiah chapter five, we learn that Nehemiah had actually been made the governor of Judah by King Artaxerxes. Um, we also learn that there's some issues that Nehemiah sees. You know, upon his governorship, he's looking around, he's checking things out. 
some of the wealthy returned exiles of Judah were not helping the poorer returned exiles of Judah, but instead they were taking their property and forcing them into debt slavery from which they couldn't escape. Right. So these poor exiles needing materials to rebuild their homes, to, to help rebuild the wall, they needed to... Uh, they needed money. So they were borrowing money from these richer exiles, but the richer exiles were not helping them out. They, right. they were like just doing business, but but not helping them out. And Nehemiah called them out on this. He shamed them. He demanded mercy on these people for the sake of the covenant of God. So like, what are you doing? We're all on the same team here. Stop. Stop it. This is not business as usual. This needs to be all hands on deck. Let's share stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So... We are told also that Nehemiah, as the governor, he wasn't just expecting the wealthy exiles to do this and and pay for Jerusalem out of their own pockets, but he had also, Nehemiah had also been personally paying back the debts of some of these exiles um, and demanding their property um, that they had put up in pledge and the interest that they had been charged be given back to them. We're also told that as governor, Nehemiah chose not to tax the people of Judah for food as normally would have been done for the government governor. That would have been his paycheck. Mm. You, we'll, we'll provide food for you. And Nehemiah was like, I'm wealthy enough. I don't need it. Right. You, you're not going to, like, I'm going to be a good guy. I'm going to be we're <laughs> yeah. all in, all hands on deck. Nehemiah chapter six. So the wall of Jerusalem gets finished, but there were no doors on the gates as of yet. Um, Sanballat and Tobiah, those enemies who were very well connected, very influential in the land, they hatch a plot to assassinate Nehemiah, but Nehemiah won't meet with them. He, uh, he's got their number. He knows what's going down. Finally, Sanballat and Tobiah tried to blackmail Nehemiah. If you don't meet with us, we're going to tell the king that you're launching a rebellion against him and you're declaring (coughs) yourself king over Jerusalem. But that doesn't work. Uh, And so they hire a man to be a false prophet. Uh, And this false prophet tells Nehemiah to hold himself up in the temple because men were coming to kill him. So go to the temple. It's it's the most secure place because they'd have to get through the wall. Then they'd have to get through the temple. So go there because men are coming to kill you. And Nehemiah is like, well, then I guess I'll see them when they get here. He, <laughs> he refuses to hide. Yeah. He realizes that these men have accused him of trying to become the king of Jerusalem and launch a rebellion against the king of Persia. So how bad would it look then if reports get back to the king that he's holding himself up? He's hiding yeah. in the temple. He's going to look guilty. Yeah. Right. So Nehemiah's got their number. He's not, he's not buying any of it. Uh, We also learned that there were quite a few prophets who were resisting Nehemiah. uh, But nevertheless, he got the wall finished in 52 days. And just a fun fact, there is a remnant of this wall that has been excavated in Jerusalem still standing today. It, it, It Apparently, through the construction, the archaeologists can tell it was built very hastily and it was a little bit shoddy in its construction, but hey, piece of it's still there. Yeah, it's awesome. Lasted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lasted. Yeah. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 7. They put in gates in 
the doorways. They put doors in the gates. They make a system of gatekeepers, musicians, Levites, commanders, all of these things. They're getting the city functioning once again. And there's this big list of people who had come back from exile. Uh, and we're told that Nehemiah's looking for people, actively looking for people to come back and repopulate the residential sections of Jerusalem that were still not rebuilt. He was like, we need people to come back and invest in rebuilding these homes in Jerusalem and make Jerusalem an actual functioning city once again. So that was one of Nehemiah's goals. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah chapter eight. So they, he has them gather all the people gather in at the gate, one of the gates and Ezra reads from the law of God from daybreak until noon for everyone to hear. Um, and he has, Ezra has 13 people explaining the law to the people as they go. So this, uh, this explaining the law, it could mean like letting them know what, what it means, but it also probably means translating the law because the law was written in Hebrew, but not everyone in the Babylonian exile would have continued to speak Hebrew. They probably spoke Aramaic, which was the language common in Babylon during the exile. They, they maybe, they probably also spoke Persian, Akkadian. Um, but a lot of them probably lost out on the right of Hebrew. So as the people heard the words of the law, um, they began to weep, but the, the leadership told them not to weep. This should be a celebration. So they do, they celebrate uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And each of the seven days of this festival, Ezra did the same thing. He read to them from the law. Hmm. Nehemiah chapter nine. So after the Feast of Tabernacles, they have a day of mourning and confession of sin. And there's a record of the Levites' prayer of praise that they gave at that point. It goes back through the history of Israel. Yeah. Um, and it ends with a, rec with a recognition that they are actually still, in fact, slaves because they're still subservient to Persia. So yes. there's this note here. But remember, God, we're still not fully independent here. And then they end up making a covenant with God. Nehemiah chapter 10, there's a list of uh, people uh, who sealed the written covenant. They made a covenant before God. Um, and then all of the people, men, women, and children who were old enough to understand, there was a note, vow to follow the law of God. Uh, there were specific things that were mentioned that they focused on. Um, unlawful marriages uh, with people in other religions who were practicing those religions, keeping the Sabbath holy and the Sabbath year which was a big deal and maintaining responsibility for the upkeep of the temple yeah. and to, to keep it running. So these were the things that they focused and, on. In the and it's really interesting because what they're essentially saying is obviously like your religious allegiance to God yes. is necessary. Right? Yes. They both those, they took those things down to the temple and to the Sabbath. Um, so like your everyday living plus right. Your, yeah, the marriages, which was your highest living. authorities. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, but like what's really interesting too is that like foundationally the the family household yes. is boiled as like a necessary constituent for proper worship in these different things. Yes. So it's like – and that's the reason why you saw earlier with Ezra the, the banning, right, uh, some of the divorcing the women and stuff like that is because you have this thing where it's like the family household 
is a basis mm-hmm. of worship mm-hmm. for the greater community of you know I was I like to say Christians today, but because it still applies today. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, but it's a basis of Israel. So it's like it that's it's a really important thing to keep in mind here is that the family unit is central, not only yeah. to for stable society, but also for proper worship. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where it begins, right? It begins in the home, and then it goes out. That's home right. And community and yeah. Yeah. But you see it all throughout, when, when right. especially in in these times where they're trying to reestablish. Yeah. Right? You you see the importance of it brought up and brought up. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 11. Um, leaders begin settling in Jerusalem. Lots were taken uh, to bring one of every 10 families into Jerusalem. So no one really wanted to move into Jerusalem. Um you know, it was a broken down place. There was a wall. Yeah. There was a temple. Yeah. But the residential area was still in ruins. And if any place was going to be attacked, it was going to be Jerusalem. So lots were taken to bring one out of every 10 families to come and repopulate and rebuild Jerusalem. We're told that some families did volunteer Mm. to come back, but not everyone did. There's a list of the leaders who came and settled in Jerusalem and some of the villages and cities that were also settled around. Uh, around Judah are mentioned as well. Nehemiah chapter 12, there's a list of all the priests and Levites who had returned from exile and then very cool dedication ceremony of the wall of Jerusalem. (coughs) So essentially a big Levitical choir and Ezra and the leaders walked along the top of the wall of Jerusalem in one direction and then a big choir with instruments and Nehemiah and other leaders went in the other direction. Uh, and they, they stop at the temple and come down off the wall and have a temple service with sacrifices and more praise to God. (coughs) Excuse me. The last chapter of Nehemiah here Chapter 13, we learn that Nehemiah had gone back to the Persian king for a time. And so when he when he came back to Jerusalem, Tobiah, the one of those enemies, uh, some sort of official or governor in the land of Judah, had managed to get a storeroom in the temple for himself, which it's not good. <laughs> I just have an itch in my throat, so I had yeah. to take a pause, but... Nehemiah wasn't having any of that. Tobiah was an enemy of God. So Nehemiah had all of Tobiah's things thrown out of the temple and he had the room purified. It was like, no, no, no. It's not enough to just clear it out. Purify this room. We were also we're also told that the Levites who were to work in the temple had not been given their, their portions, their, their tithe. Right. Right. Their, their food. So they had gone home to their fields to work because they needed food for them and their families. So Nehemiah reorganizes the temple once again, and he fires and rehires the Levites in charge of the temple because they weren't doing it. Mm. We learn also that people were buying and selling on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah made a new rule. All the gates of Jerusalem will be shut on Sabbath days. Uh, marriages with foreign women were, had occurred again. And this is what you were talking about earlier. Their children didn't even speak Hebrew. Right. But they spoke the languages of their mothers. And this is a problem because they're being trained in foreign religions and not in the way of God. So Nehemiah rebukes them. Um, 
and even beats some of the men who are getting in his face. <laughs> and he talks to them about Solomon, uh, which is really interesting. Um, we're told that even the son of the high priest had married Sanballat's daughter, the governor of Samaria. So Sanballat and Tobiah, these enemies of Judah, had worked out different ways of trying to infiltrate right. these returning exiles that they didn't like. And that's the end of Nehemiah. So we see Nehemiah playing hardball. When he comes back from Persia, yeah. he's like, none of this. Yeah. He was a very no-nonsense kind even, of guy. Even in their prayer, it was about how they've been unfaithful. Yes. And, and they were like, repenting for their unfaithfulness. All the way boiled back down to David, like Solomon onwards. It was just like repenting about how unfaithful they were, which then again recaps. Uh, that's why I was mm-hmm. kind of laughing when you mentioned it. They kind of it recaps Chronicles again yeah. in Nehemiah, where it's like, okay, this is the reason why they're talking. This is the reason why in Second Chronicles they focus – they don't talk about Israel. They focus on the Judean kings yeah. specifically because yes. they're trying to bring this down to say, look what happened to our un- – Look what our unfaithfulness has done. Mm -hmm. And so it's time to, in that prayer, be faithful, right? To restore Jerusalem and the temple and to get things back to the way they ought to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. And this is why godly leaders were so important in this time because, you know, we all know how it is as humans uh, when you have a culture around you of people um, doing things that are sinful, it's so easy to justify that sinful behavior. Mm -hmm. If you see someone that you respect starting, you know, in a sinful life, it's so tempting sometimes to just be like, well, is it really that bad? Like you go right now, everyone's Mm -hmm. doing it. Does God really require this of us? So this is why godly leaders were so important because Nehemiah could come back and go, what are you doing? (laughs) Like we are called to this. No, we need no, we need to follow. We need to stick to what we said. Yeah. So ideally everyone does that, but it's so important that our leaders are godly so that they can help correct. Right. Right? Yeah. I just got this picture of Nehemiah grabbing the men. Men. Yeah. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> yeah. Snap out of it. Yeah. I think he would have been something fierce to be honest. No, yeah, I think so. He Yikes. Says, I wouldn't yeah. want to mess with Nehemiah. I'd like no. to talk to Nehemiah. Well, he's a cupbearer too, if you think about it. His his life is on the line literally every second. Time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. He's just totally aware about it. Yeah. Okay, Esther. Let's move on to Esther. A very interesting book. Esther chapter one. So this is a generation before Nehemiah. So Nehemiah served as cupbearer to Artaxerxes, uh, which was Xerxes' son. Okay. Or Hazarus' son. So um, Esther chapter one begins with Xerxes, king of Persia. He gets rid of his current queen, for not obeying his drunken order to come and be gazed upon in a room full of his drunken <laughs> guests. And what's really interesting is if you, I actually recently put a segment in the Bible Discovery show about this palace, uh, Darius's palace, which is where Xerxes would have been at this moment in Susa, the ruins of this palace had been found and the layout has been preserved. So this very banquet hall we you can stand in it yeah. if you visit Iran today. If you yeah. visit Shushan in Iran today, you can you can stand there. It's wild. Uh, it's, it's, it's wild. <laughs> it's exciting, yeah. It's so wild. Okay, so Esther chapter two. The king has a problem. He has no queen. He has no official queen anymore uh, because he his queen's name is Vashti. When she refuses to come to the banquet. He's like, well, then you're no longer. Yeah, the advisors are like, it's probably not a good idea to keep her on board. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's a little too feisty. Yeah. She's a little too ready to say no to you. Yeah. So um, 
In chapter two, Xerxes regrets his decision later. So his officials decide to find him a beautiful new queen. This is when we meet Mordecai. He is an official to Persian King Xerxes living in Susa. And he has uh, his cousin, his young cousin, who was orphaned, living with him. And her name is Hadassah. She's later called Esther for the rest of the book. So uh, Hadassah or Esther gets chosen out of these rounds of women. Uh, you know, there's essentially like it's a it's a contest on who is the king going to love the most? Like who, right. who's going to be the most beautiful? Who's going to capture his attention? <laughs> Hadassah wins. Not sure if it's, I mean, eh, she wins. Uh, and uh, she eventually becomes queen. Uh, but as Mordecai <laughs> tells her to do, she keeps her nationality a secret. Okay, so Mordecai, while he's at his post as an official, he's sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate separated the royal palace complex from the regular city of Susa. While he's sitting there, he overhears an assassination plot against the king's life. So he tells Esther, who tells the king, who gets those men impaled on poles. Now, these assassination plots, something that happened often. In fact, Xerxes ends up you know, if you read his history, he ends up getting assassinated. So, like, these happened all the time. Right. <clears throat> Esther chapter three, um, Haman is another official in Xerxes' court. He is honored, and the king commands all of his officials to bow down to Haman in honor. But Mordecai won't. Um, we're not told why. He just refuses to comply. He refuses to bow down to Haman, potentially because he is a Jew, but we, we don't know. So um, Haman casts a lot, a dice, to determine the date of his extermination plan. He hates Mordecai. He knows Mordecai is a Jew, and he's going to give back at Mordecai. But more than that, he's going to destroy Mordecai's family. He's going to destroy Mordecai's people. Right. Okay. So Haman offers to pay the king in order to destroy a group of people that he thinks are dangerous to the kingdom. Jews. It's yeah, the Jews, right. right? And the king says, you know what? Do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Just do whatever you want, Haman. You're my official. I trust you. So Haman sends out an edict <clears throat> for persons to kill Jews, and the date is set. It's the one decided by Haman's dice, his lot, his pure. And it's set for 11 months' time. Esther chapter four, Mordecai starts to go in mourning. And when Esther hears about this, she's like, you shouldn't be mourning. So she sends him new clothes because he would have tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and asks him to stop mourning. Um, He explains what's going on and he asks Esther to intercede. But Esther does not want to intercede. She hasn't been summoned to see the king for 30 days, for a month. So it's not like she's in good standing with the king. It's not like so yeah. <clears throat> she's kind of in this neutral place. Um, and Haman did have access to the king's throne. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was actually illegal for anyone to just go see the king. They had to be summoned by the king. Mordecai makes an overt statement of faith, one of the only overt statements of faith found in Esther, actually the only one, really, In verses 13 and 14, he sends back this answer to Esther. 
Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, Hadassah, you need to fear God more than you fear the king yes. and his advisors. Esther, take, she's like, yep, okay, you're right. Yep. You're right. So in Esther chapter five, she risks her life by putting on her royal robes that would signify that she is the queen of Persia and she goes before the king uninvited. <clears throat> now, Luckily, the king is happy by this. <laughs> it's a role reversal. His other wife didn't want to come before him. Now this one is coming before him. I don't know. But he's happy about it. And, and, and you know, he sees her coming and, and he extends the scepter and she's okay. And Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Um, at the banquet, she kind of chickens out. So she asks, she either chickens out or she's like, no, this is not enough. I need to show the yeah. king that like really yeah she, really. she might have just been strategic too she just felt the moment like this is not the right time to bring it up yeah who knows what they were talking or, about or at dinner i want to honor him again yes I want to get, like i want to do what i can do to honor him yes again yeah so i'm gonna give him more honor yeah again. yeah so she holds another banquet for the king on the next day and haman um <clears throat> in esther chapter six the king can't sleep so he has the records of the royal court read to him. And he hears about how Mordecai had saved him from that assassination plot a while ago, but how nothing was ever done to honor Mordecai. So he decides to honor him. Uh, Haman comes in to ask permission um, to execute Mordecai, but he ends up honoring Mordecai. Right. Which is... Really ironic, fun. yeah. It's, it's fun how this all, yeah. You know, everything is, is beautifully written. It's full of twists and turns. Yeah, recapping it doesn't do it justice. No. <clears throat> Esther chapter seven. At that second banquet, Esther finally tells the king what's bothering her, but she does it really delicately because, after all, it's her, it's his edict essentially that is going to kill the Jews, and she doesn't want to blame him. Right. So in verse three to four, she says this, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it please you, grant me my life. This is my my petition and spare my people. This is my request for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. But no, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. When the king asks who has done this, Esther tells him it was Haman, and the king leaves in a rage, um, which is, if you know anything about Xerxes in history, it's pretty fitting. He seems like <laughs> yeah. a pretty, like, off-the-wall kind of guy. He's whipping the seas. <clears throat> yeah. <Is> yeah. <laughs> leaves in a rage. Seems like he was ragey. Yeah. It leaves in a rage, um, and at this point, Haman also should have left, according to Persian custom. Because he shouldn't have been alone with a royal wife, even with servants around. But he knew he was dead. So he stayed to beg. And he had fallen down on the couch where Esther was um, reclining, which there's another irony here because Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. And now Haman is bowing to Esther. But when the king comes back in, he sees Haman touching the couch where Esther's on. And it enrages him even more. And um, he impales Haman. Yes. 
Haman impaled. <clears throat> in Esther chapter 8, Esther is given Haman's entire estate, which is a huge estate because he was the top official in Persia. Right. Um, and Mordecai is given the king's signet seal. So this means he is promoted quite a bit. And Esther puts um, Mordecai over Haman's estate. So she owns it, but she's like, here, you can mm. run it for me. Mordecai writes a counter edict that the Jews can defend themselves and there's great uh, celebrations um, and, and everything's good. Esther chapter 9, when the day came, uh, all of the nobles and officials of Persia helped the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. Because Mordecai the Jew was now very influential in the kingdom of Persia. And the Jews defended themselves even in Susa. Esther asked if they could defend themselves for another day in Susa, and the king grants it. It's noted that they didn't take plunder, which is interesting. Haman's sons were also impaled for their father's insolence, I guess. Yeah. And um, the festival of Purim is established to celebrate, the Jews celebrate yearly this um, deliverance of God, of the people. That's right. And in Esther chapter 10, we're told of Mordecai's, uh, uh, he rises up to become second in the kingdom of Persia instead of Haman. And that's 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 Esther. What's interesting about Esther too, is that the word God is never mentioned, mm-hmm. but God is providentially working in the background the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there is mention of him and deliverance and prayer and fasting. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's like, it's it's all there. It's in there. It's just like, it's just not explicit. Some people have even questioned, like, why is Esther in the Bible? Right? <laughs> it's kind of silly. But yeah. at the same time, it really also gets to show you, like, patterns of how yeah. God works. Like, we haven't seen the kind of divine irony that we read in Esther we haven't really seen it that potent since the judges. Mm-hmm. Like the way that Haman is like, he's boasting in himself. Oh, I'm the greatest thing. Right? Xerxes thinks I'm the greatest. And everything he thinks of himself happens to Mordecai. Yeah. Right? So it's like it's that constant like God judges you based on your own judgments. Yeah. Um, and it's just like this. You see these patterns that happen in the text mm-hmm. that you see also happen in, let's say, the book of Judges, yeah. even with Saul and David, stuff like that. You see these patterns arise. And it's just showing you that God is moving in these different ways. And it's it's story-esque. Some people have said Esther can't be real because it's, look how beautiful, like, look how be- beautifully it's written and look at all these ironies that happen. It's like, well, no, that's kind of the point yeah. is that God is God is weaving and intervening throughout history. So it's going to continue. Yeah. And just because you write a history really beautifully doesn't mean that the history didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know people that challenge these things, I don't, I don't know. But the point here is that, like, God is woven himself into the fabric mm-hmm. that upholds the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. So he's a pattern that underpins it, which is it's really beautiful to read. And it gets you to understand God without explicitly talking about God. It makes you think about God more. Yeah. 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 And 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 then also added to this concept of these are people who are in exile and yet God is still working with them. That's Even right. Even in their punishment, God is working with them. God is moving. Yeah. You know? That's right. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that wraps up our chapter recap for this week. Put any comments or questions down below in the uh, comments, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Hope you have a good week. See you next time. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.